Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Hey everyone, Randall here. I just want to tell you that today's episode is a relic from the summer of 2020, aka our controversial Nightmares and Dreamscapes era. This episode, a deep dive into TNT's Nightmares and Dreamscapes TV anthology series, was previously available only to our patrons over in the Barrens. We're unlocking it because it features discussion of a few Everything's Eventual adaptations, including The Road Virus Heads North and Autopsy Room 4. If you have haven't listened to our Everything's Eventual Story ranking, well, it spans two episodes, and they're both there just a few notches down in your podcast feed. Um, a reminder that next month's book in our chronological reread is from a Buick 8, and also that in September we'll have a patron-exclusive episode on King's upcoming book, Fairy Tale, due out in September. As always, the book episodes in our chronological reread remain free. New books can be found in The Barons. If you'd like to join us in The Barons, you can get there via Patreon, patreon.com slash thebarons, and check out our tiers. We've got hundreds of hours of content there that is not hyperbole, including our Dark Tower Detour series, our Stranger Things spinoff, Talkin' Hawkins, and the archives where we unpack the rarities in King's massive catalog. And that's just scratching the surface. So yeah, patreon.com slash the barons. Enjoy the episode. He brought you the Green Mile. The Shawshank Redemption. And The Shining. Now, from the incredible mind of Stephen King, journey to a place where reality stops. It's like the town in the Twilight Zone. And imagination begins. Eight mind-bending stories. A four-week television event. I won't do another stretch. You get out this time, you stay up. Don't make me do it. Four hours ago, I killed my brother. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. Nightmares and Dreamscapes from the stories of Stephen King. July, only on TNT. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of hope. All in the name of hope. All in the name of Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Well, uh, this is a special episode for Patreon members, and to help gear you guys up for our two-part series on Nightmares and Dreamscapes, the book, we are going to talk about the little curio that is 2006's TNT uh, miniseries, Nightmares <laughs> and Dreamscapes from the Stories of Stephen King. This was an eight-episode anthology that aired uh, across four weeks in the summer of 2006. Uh, eight episodes, two episodes aired each night. Each one was an hour long, and they were all based on short stories uh, from mostly Nightmares and Dreamscapes, but also uh, Everything's Eventual and Night Shift. So uh, before we get into all of that, let's uh, go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, who is joining me here in Chicago? Uh, this is Michael, Mr. John Hurt. Rothman, <laughs> um, and I'm I'm uh, reporting live. Wait, John Hurt? 
Did you John, say John Hurt? Hurt? No, no, not John Hurt. It's William Hurt. I already messed yeah, I was it up. Say. You know what? I'm just going to go back. This is, uh, hey, <laughs> constant listeners, this is Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. There you go. Aww. This is my comfort zone. This is why I know, now I know why you chose Rock and Randall. Because it's yeah, it just, it's just nice and simple. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, Mike, had you own this on DVD? I do own this on DVD. I actually watched this live when uh, it premiered because I was uh, uh, just a, a young college grad. Well, I wasn't actually a college grad yet. I was a college student in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, uh, where I met uh, Dan Caffrey, fellow loser. And uh, I uh, actually, Mac, too. But I, I was watching it live <laughs> when it went down and I hadn't read when any it. When it went down when it went down um and i only recognized like a few of the stories uh because obviously i hadn't read uh, i hadn't read uh, nightmares and dreamscapes at that point and uh i you know it, it's mid-aughts television this is before we got the the second wave with uh, mad men and breaking bad and all the other great shows that we know now and so i didn't think much of it I mean, you know it's the middle of the summer so it's kind of like all right well whatever great this is fine this is okay television. <laughs> and then when I got the DVD for our huge ranking for Stephen King uh, sometime in, I think it was, what, 2017 when it came out, um, I, I rewatched them all and just cowered um, at the at the CGI <laughs> and why some of these actors. I was just embarrassed for some of the actors in this too. And I got really depressed for Ron Livingston because this is like pre-conjuring. So I'm like, oh man, this is, he's really roughing it here. But um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I, I got some, you would say mixed feelings for this series. Um, but yeah, all right, that's my story. Well, we'll talk more about all of that shortly. And who is joining us from Nashville? Hi, this is Jen Ahoochie Mama Adams from Nashville. <laughs> And an example of the uh, early odds dialogue, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not know this existed until um, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, Oh, wow. I know. Yeah. Which, okay. So I think I was in my phase. I think a lot of King fans, sometimes you grow up obsessed with it. And then like, I went to college and like heard people like kind of shaming Stephen King. So I kind of was out of him for a little bit. And then I kind of, my fandom came back with like full force. And I think this must've been in that period because it would have been totally on my radar and I just don't remember it existing at all, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, um, and this is Rock and Randall Colburn, and I, yeah, I, I remember barely hearing about this, but I didn't have cable at the time, mm. and I, I remember seeing previews, and it just didn't, it didn't really, like, I liked King at the time, but I wasn't, like, deep in it, and I also just looked, I saw the previews, and I was like, eh, I don't know about that, mm-hmm. so <laughs> I, I, I never really sought it out, um, although it's always been an interesting sort of curio for me, and also I heard from, you know, the people who had watched it that it wasn't that great, so, um, so yeah, I, uh, I, this was my first full viewing, I had seen Battleground when we did Night Shift, yeah. um, because we talked about that adaptation back then. And we'll probably touch on a little bit more here because I think it's sort of the the crown jewel of of this series. Oh, easily. Uh, which is why they which is why they did it first. Um so yeah, but before we talk about it, let's go through just kind of some of the some more details of it. Um yeah, so this it aired July 12th through August 2nd, 2006. A DVD came out with many special features that Mike watched all of. All so of. we're going to talk about those <laughs> as well uh, in October 2006. And um, the episodes, there's eight episodes, and they were based on the Nightmares and Dreamscape stories, Omni's Last Case, You Know They Got a Hell of a Band, The End of the Whole Mess, The Fifth Quarter, and Crouch End. Uh, we won't be reviewing those stories necessarily. We'll be talking about them next week in our first episode of uh, the our Nightmares and Dreamscapes uh, series. Well, maybe we'll talk about some of them then, and then some of them in uh, yeah. the, week, the week after that, because we go from worst to best, so it'd be prepared for that. And then there's also adaptations of two Everything's Eventual stories, The Road Virus Heads North and Autopsy Room 4, and then um, Battleground from Night Shift, which was um, how, what they kicked it all off with. And there was kind of a, you know, pretty big names associated with oh, this. Yeah. Will, I think William Hurt mm-hmm. specifically in Battleground was a big deal. He was a, he's always been, you know, a bankable star. Money in the bank, as, as you like to say. Uh, you know, you can't go wrong with William Hurt. So, yeah. um, 
So I think getting him, and he didn't do a lot of TV, especially back then. So that was a pretty big get for them. But, you know, there was also uh, the great Tom Berenger, uh, William, H, William H. Macy, uh, which was probably, to me, the most impressive get. Um, and then Ron Livingston uh, from Office Space, obviously, and now the Conjuring mm-hmm. franchise. Uh, the great Steven Weber, you may remember from the Shining miniseries. Also the, yes. uh, yeah, also the, the person who reads the It uh, audiobook, mm-hmm. um, I believe. Is it, is it it or is it The Shining? I think it's it. It's it, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Wings. He's super dreamy on Wings. Oh, yeah. He's got, you always got Wings. Uh, I love Stephen Weber. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kim Delaney, uh, Samantha Mas- Mathis, and then perhaps maybe one of the most beautiful women who has ever walked this earth, uh, Claire Forlani from mm-hmm. Mallrats. Yeah. Um, always felt she was a, a bit above Mallrats, but, you know, uh, still a great <laughs> film. And I think sort of in maybe the best uh, a bit of casting, Savage Commando from Battleground was played by Bill Beretta, who was kind of a staple of the Henson, Jim Henson universe. And we'll talk about the Henson creature shop uh, uh, ties shortly. So um, a couple fun things about this was it's not really remembered as being sort of a great televisual event. Um, Mm -hmm. There was never a second season. There was never really a lot of chatter about it. But this was nominated for... Uh, several Emmy Awards. So wow. it was nominated for, let me see here, Makeup for a Miniseries, Non-Prosthetic, makes which makes sense because that's the Henson stuff. Mm-hmm. Music Composition. Oh, boy, do Ooh. I have some... Yeah, that's a Do problem. I have mm-hmm. some thoughts on this? Uh, original Dramatic story, score was up for an Emmy. And then uh, William H. Macy was up for Lead Actor in a Miniseries or a Movie for his role in Omni's Last Case. Really? Uh, you know, yeah, I, I have I, thoughts I, on that, too. I, I got some defense for that, so... Uh, well, we'll get to it. it. Yeah. We'll get to it. Um, and the the ratings were actually quite good, at least in the, the first week. It debuted. Um, uh, it's back-to-back episodes uh, debuted, number one and number two, in basic cable for the night, uh, which was a pretty big deal. And it drew... The first installment, Battleground, drew 5.2 million total viewers. And then, uh, what was it? Second one, Crouch End, uh, reached 4.8 million people. That's a lot. Like, they would mm. kill for those numbers today. Well, it's kind of crazy, too, because if you look at, like, what was in theaters at the time, and it's not like they had a pandemic or anything to keep everyone at home. Um, <laughs> they It was going up against some big movies that summer. I, I mean, you had, like, Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Dead Man's Chest, Devil Wears Prada. Um, the uh, Well, I mean, I guess after that was kind of a, a dead zone with my super ex-girlfriend in, in Monster <laughs> House. But, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, to be that mid-season of the of the summer it, it's it's i don't know did for, for it to do well numbers wise is pretty staggering uh yeah kind of a, an, an accomplishment you know, looking in hindsight um but yeah i'm, I'm a little shocked at uh, some of these critical awards yeah so yeah. i i looked on rotten tomatoes and i saw that it had an 88 percent fresh rating and what? again you can't yeah you can't but the thing you can't really trust rotten tomatoes because it doesn't really <laughs> account for it's like everything's either an A or an F, right? When you're yeah, looking at Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. But but even looking at a lot of the reviews, it was very positive. But I think, and from what I was looking at, most of the reviews were for the first episode, for Battleground, mm-hmm. which is by far the most impressive episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see where a lot of that comes from. A few of them did, did dig a little bit deeper. Um, the New York Times gave it overall a positive review, but it was an incredibly condescending one. Uh, oh, the yeah. New York Times always, always had sort of a chip on its shoulder from... The, just having dug into reviews and uh, for this podcast, I've always noticed they've had a bit of chip on their shoulder when it comes to Stephen King. Um, so a New York Times review begins, Stephen King has no end of bankable nightmares, the surreal Farago kind in which the cursor uh, turns into your father, uh, who is also Jack Kennedy, and he keeps slipping into the pool. What's so great about that? Like all of our boring dreams, Mr. King's don't cohere. They're desultory and plotless. Characters come and go, and dialogue that sounds pithy is also meaningless. That's how the beginning of this positive review begins. Hmm. Um, they go on to say, the series is an excellent reminder that what makes K- Mr. King's vision so fascinating is not their uniqueness or their artistry but exactly how much they're like ordinary nightmares so even the praise is condescending yeah uh, so, seriously yeah but they they either. do yeah but they do uh they do um 
uh, overall gave it a positive review. Uh, same with uh, Boston.com, uh, which also, which well, no, they, they were more negative, but I was intrigued. I thought this was actually uh, at least a little more intriguing. They say, it's a mixed bag that never quite moves beyond non sequitur creeps and special effects. The production values are sleek, and with cast that include Jeremy, oh, I forgot Jeremy Sisto, the great Jeremy oh, yeah. Sisto, you mm-hmm. might say. Clueless uh, Jeremy Sisto. Hideaway. <laughs> Stephen Weber, Rod Livingston, and Marsha Mason. The acting is solid enough, but many of the stories fail to transcend their own narrative details towards something universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, uh, but then, but then, even that review, along with several of the other ones, praised Battleground as sort of being the best one. But but you know, I was looking the Austin Chronicle, Washington Post, uh, a lot of uh, places like that gave this uh, very. Very good reviews. So well, I thought that I think was. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's because of the episodes they gave. I mean, I think Crouch. I think Crouch's end was is awful, uh, and that's only mm-hmm. one of the three that they gave. It looks like Umnies and yep. also Battleground were rounded out the three that they got. Which mm. hey, I mean, if I got Umnies and Battleground, I see that this is a summer. Stephen King Fiesta, and it's also in the mid aughts when television doesn't have too much of a, I don't know, um, you know, a, a watermark for expectations outside of HBO. I, I, I'd probably give it a, a mid level, um, you know, positive review. I, I don't know if I'd go all in as, um, you know, to an eighty percent or something like that, like Rotten Tomatoes gives it. But I, I guess I could see myself pulling punches like the New York Times does in the review. But yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I found that very interesting, but I think, yeah, I think you're right, Mike. I think it just really speaks to kind of maybe the, the state of television during that time. I mean, obviously you had mm-hmm. the Sopranos, um, going on HBO, but you also had sort of, uh, uh, like the shield was, was doing its thing around that time. Uh, but like the cable drama was still finding itself, exactly. you know what I mean? Yeah. And like lost mm-hmm. was a big phenomenon and things like that. But it's like, uh, in terms of TV horror, there really weren't a lot of, uh, um, you know, watermarks. There weren't really a lot of people who were doing it well at that time. I mean, that was, I mean, if you want to say walking dead, at least the first season was solid, you know, but it's like, that was still a few years off, Oh, totally. uh, several yeah. years off. So I mean, it wasn't until like um, 2008, I would give it maybe 2009 when you start seeing things coalesce a little bit more outside of, you know, the HBOs and the Showtimes. And I mean, even looking back at some of the Showtime shows around this time, especially with like Dexter, it's not that great. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still kind of finding its footing. So yeah, I forgot about Dexter. Yeah. With the exception of like, (laughs) you know, the Sopranos and Oz and (laughs) like the wire, you're not going to get like, I don't. I just don't. You don't really get great television, with the exception of obviously the Shield that you mentioned. And um, I actually think the first three seasons of Rescue Me are pretty phenomenal. But again, it was like it was like budding television at that point. So Mm -hmm. yeah, and TNT, you know, they they're not known for this kind of TV. And I think that uh, they had done the Salem's Lot um, at a you know adaptation, the Rob Lowe one a few years previous. And I think that Mm -hmm. uh, this and I think Red too, right? Oh yeah, Rose Red, and that was. God, that wasn't that in the 90s? I think that I just looked it up. I think it's 2002. Yeah, it's like early 2000s. Like, I I have that on DVD still, and I don't know. I haven't watched it. Well, I'll I'll just say this: like, Rose Red is 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 trash. Like, it is really really bad. I have I have some I have lots of thoughts on it, which we'll talk about when we get there. But um, but there's that. But then and then the Rob Lowe Salem's Lot, I think, is is better than it maybe. Uh, could have been, but it's still not great. But it, it mm-hmm. did really, really well for the yeah. network. So I Which think is that's funny. why they like they said they mentioned that in the New York Times. They're like, you know, uh, these elaborate show off productions, which star people like William H Macy and William Hurt, are proof that TNT, having had success with Salem's Lot in 2004, is really getting into the movie making game. Like, which is funny now, right? Yeah, mm. like nobody talks about Salem's Lot. Like they, right. They, well, I think back then, you know, it, TV was still not the respected property it is today. And so I think just mm-hmm. the fact that there was any production value, you know, yeah. it's like that they weren't just shooting on unit sets or whatever. It was they were actually trying to make something cinematic, like even though it looks really chintzy from our point of view today, uh, I think that and especially many of these episodes do, it's almost shocking. Um, But it's like, it's, uh, you know, I think at that time it was at least considered a solid effort. And so, um, so I think like, let's maybe just begin by talking about Battleground because I think maybe we'd all agree that that was probably the best one. Um, Yeah. 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 
and I think, and then we'll talk about kind of the mixed bag that is the rest of them. But, but you know, um, and there was a lot of press that went into um, that went into Battleground because it was, uh, you know, it was created where they basically recruited uh, Brian Henson of the Jim Henson Company, the Creature Shop, to uh, to direct the episode and also create the effects for it. And they they didn't really rely on CGI like they do in a lot of the rest of the series to um, to do this. So the effects actually look pretty cool. Like the little army mm-hmm. men actually have like a really strong aesthetic. They look really neat, and uh, even some of the gore effects are kind of fun. You know. So, yeah. um, but what else did you guys think about Battleground? Well, I think what really works for it is the fact that it is silent and there there's something there's an artistic choice with that you know and the fact that mm-hmm. there are no words that are spoken other than you know from at least William Hurt's standpoint and I and I think that helps in giving it um you don't have the cheesy dialogue that you have in the other chapters here um right the dialogue mm-hmm. is so bad well, well, but th- just... there's an irony to that though because if there's anyone that's going to be able to take dialogue and elevate it in this entire cast I mean granted it should be all of them considering that we have pretty much be <laughs> B plus level talent here, if not A minus mm-hmm. talent. Um, William Hurt, like he he he'd be able yeah. to make any script really shitty. I mean, for, for Christ's sake, he's he's made he made like the ending of AI sound good. So I I, I just think like <laughs> he probably could have done really well with some of the dialogue, but at the same time, like I love I love his uh I love his little like physical quirks here. There's a a great bit in Stella. Um, with uh, you know Michael Ian Black and uh, Michael Showalter and David Wayne and in Comedy Central was like one season, um, but they they do charades and at one point they're like uh, uh they're like oh do uh do your William Hurt or whatever and and all of a sudden he just goes quiet and he like does a weird smirk and tilts his head and like that's his impersonation. No, I agree. I. I- I think that is interesting. I just, I, I realized that I assume most of our listeners probably know what Battleground's about, but it would probably be helpful just to say, uh, basically it's about a hitman who comes home and somebody's delivered a package for him and he opens it. And it's a lot of little, bu- a bunch of little toy soldiers who begin attacking him. And that sounds funny. Um, uh, you know, on its face, but then all the little bullets and all the little things eventually add up. And, uh, soon let's just say that, um, they he loses the war so um so i but yeah i do think i i like that you bring up the idea of um kind of showing off william hurt as a physical actor which is something we don't really get i mean he's the kind of guy you rely on when you need sort of a steady emotional hand and uh somebody to i don't know bring gravitas and he brings that gravitas but i do kind of like love to think about an alternate universe in which you had like a physical like an actor who's known for physical comedy like the first person that came to mind which is funny but i just wrote about him recently but Toby Huss, who played Artie, the oh, strongest yeah. man in the world, and Pete and Pete. And he's like now kind of a really reliable character actor who pops up and stuff all the time. But he's such like an elastic, fun, like weird physical actor. I'd love to see somebody like that, like, hat, like do this kind of, I don't know, completely silent uh, play that this is. I could see him doing it easily. I mean, for him, I think it would probably be, um, you know, second nature just because he is so physical um yeah but i i i applaud hurt in being an action man here because he's not really one mm-hmm. i mean there's like yeah i'm trying to think like what movies of his catalog could even be construed as like action he's not like he's a dramatic actor so like to have him in this like total macho actiony role is not only against type which probably is why he did it because it seemed challenging to him at the time but um mm-hmm. i don't know it's 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 he's just intriguing to watch and i should note that uh the producers of this were probably huge fans of the big chill considering that tom berenger is also in this series so you have berenger <laughs> you know and uh and hurt both together it's a shame they couldn't reunite because they are uh kind of rivals in the big chill so it would have been, <laughs> would have been fun, funny to as a spiritual nod there but uh yeah, love Battleground. And it, what I love about it also is that there's this sort of um, seclusion to it too uh, that kind of reminds me of like um, Creepshow and uh, Cat's Eye. Like Creepshow with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, the cockroach segment where it's seemingly assumed that like, it just feels like there's nobody in New York City during that rainy night for the guy with the, when all the cockroaches are getting him. Um, and then mm-hmm. also when you look at the ledge for Cat's Eye, there's this sort of like um, almost like quasi dystopian quality to that story where like he's kind of alone on this ledge 
like how is this outlandish thing happening in the midst of a, a major metropolis and i kind of like that mm-hmm. with this there it kind of harkens back to the the simplicity of that uh seclusion with those chapters so and which is fitting because they all seem to they also they all come from um they're all cut from the same cloth of uh, stephen king's source material so I love that about it, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it's very contained, and I yeah. it's it, like a one man bottle episode, which I think some of the other ones struggle because I think they're trying to do too much with the story in such a small oh, yeah. amount of time. Um, and this one, you don't—he doesn't have to interact with anybody else. Like, there's there's no dialogue. I it it was really well done. The gore actually really got affected me and kind of made me sick. Um, and in my notes, I was like, wow, this is really like I was not expecting it to be as good as it was right off the bat because I kind of saw the uh, the opening scene and I was like, oh, boy. Um, but I thought I just thought I was really into this and I don't love this story. So I feel like this like it brought it alive in a way that I was really excited about. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, fun. Fun fact. Do you guys know who wrote this episode? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Richard Matheson's son. Uh, yeah, Richard really? Christian Matheson, yeah. yeah. Which uh, I think is a really cool kind of maybe full circle moment for Stephen King because, you know, he mm-hmm. loved Richard Matheson uh, so much. And I think it's, you know, obviously really cool for him to give an opportunity to Matheson's son, who's also a very, mm-hmm. you know, celebrated author in his own right. So Yeah. There was, there's but, a trivia part in uh, IMDb where it says that uh, King went to Matheson's grave and uh, he said... Uh, looks like I got your son working for me, you son of a bitch. Uh, and then, no, I just wish that was true. I was not with you so far into that. <laughs> uh, uh, so that's that's amazing. Uh, so yeah, I I think like we can all agree, and I think that's why you know they probably why they front loaded the the screeners that they sent <laughs> to the critics with this yeah. one. But you know, I think Crouch and um, I, I have some interesting Ooh. thoughts on, and then Omni. I, let's move into that because, Mike, I want to hear your defense of Omni's last case because if uh-huh. I'm being honest, I found it unwatchable. <laughs> I, all right. So, again, it, it you have to... Wait, let's say what it's about first. Why don't you okay. explain that and then you break down why it's why you like it? Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of like uh, John Candy's Delirious in which the writer, you know, suffering from writer's block, finds himself into his own little story and he gets to be the kind of lead main character. It's a fantasy for all writers, which so you could tell that you know, King kind of gets to, 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 to live out again. Um, the, the sort of mm-hmm. inside baseball he knows, uh, as a writer. Um, but you know, it's all, it, it's a throwback vintage, uh, film noir, uh, style story, which I think really works to William H. Macy's favor because he, I'm, I'm always just going to think of him as this old fashioned actor. Like I, 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 it's not just because of Pleasantville, um, mm-hmm. I almost like mix Fargo in this as well, where mm-hmm. he just seems like he's from a different era to me. So that kind of worked to my to the benefit of this segment for me. I, I like I always just see Macy as just kind of like you look at old photos sometimes, right? And like like from the seventeen hundred, not from the seventeen hundreds, from the eighteen hundreds and like the early nineteen hundreds, um, and you go like, wow, those people really don't look anything like the people that today. Like they all have like different sharper features. And a lot of that is because mm-hmm. of the cameras that, and the, the ways that the, you know, the portraits are presented, but there are people that just look like they're from a different era. And like Macy's one of them. And so for me, that coupled with this sort of tongue in cheek tone of it all, and it being kind of like a, uh, a, a almost like a summer stock thing. Like I, I just loved it. Like I, I, it's, it's. I don't. Well, love is too hard of a lore, of, of thing. But I find it okay. And I think it's, it's, um, it's just uh, sprightly king, if that makes any sense. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like it's charming in a way. And I, and I, and I credit all that solely to uh, William H Macy, who's never done a har- a bad thing in his life, including, um, you know, tuition. Uh, <laughs> scandal yeah. <laughs> that was all felicity right yeah yeah he had uh, nothing to do with it yeah he had nothing <laughs> that's absolutely nothing at all um but yeah so for me that that's why it works but i also can see the arguments for why it's like cheesy as hell and chintzy as hell and the you know maybe the production quality isn't the greatest because to be fair with the exception of battleground which even still has some sort of ps2 graphics to it the the production quality of this show is not good um no. yeah. in the slightest so. yeah 
I didn't really mind. Like, I kind of liked the two William H. Macy's. And I think the my favorite part of this was when they were interacting and he was like asking him questions about his life and saying, you don't know because I haven't wrote it. I really liked that. Um, but what was so, and I swear I have read this story, but I remembered basically nothing about it. So then all of a sudden when they were talking about this child drowning in the pool, I was like, where did that come from? If With this like lighthearted story. And I think that was the hardest part for me one like that's those are just hard things for me to watch but um it just like the dichotomy of those two tones just felt really off you know yeah and I just I I couldn't ever like I thought we were watching this fun noir and I think I would have liked it better if it had been more about the two of them just interacting with each other you know but I think it just tried too much you know I agree I mean honestly that's one of the reasons that's one of the things I have. Uh, that's one of the struggles I have with the new Twilight Zone. I, so, my mind just kind of circling all in that. And by the time this episode drops, the review's already out. So whatever, the embargo is already lifted. So, <laughs> I, I mean, it's just all <laughs> over the place. And the the problem is, is that I, I think that, and I talked a little bit about this on the Fifth Dimension last year, but I, I think that to write like really good, solid anth- anthological television. I think some of the reasons why like the, tele- the the Twilight Zone of like, you know, the 50s and 60s were so great um, as opposed to something like, say, like even in the 90s and the, the 2000s when you get into anthology television is that you have writers that are are not so gluttonous. They, 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 they really mm-hmm. have to kind of treat the every word and every uh, sheet of paper with the respect it deserves and knowing that like, you know, every line is 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 pretty much like almost like a um uh like like a lifeline almost like you really have to keep this going and everything has to count and like as we start getting into like the more exaggerated uh you know run times where it's like you know where it goes from 22 minutes and 30 minutes to like 45 minutes and 50 minutes like you get a little bit more freedom and i think that freedom kind of um ruins the story and it also has conditioned a lot of the more modern writers to write in this medium to kind of be a little more lazy and not so terse um mm-hmm. and and that's kind of the problem i have with with both seasons of the twilight zone so far is that like you there's just too much like you don't need that much and then these segments like less is more and that's that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why so many of the twilight zone episodes of yesteryear are so impactful because you really only have the bare bones story, but man, that the bare bones story allows the emotional twist to hit so hard. And I think that's kind of what happens with this one too, is that like they try to include too much with the short short story when you really only needed the bare bones of it for it to work. Um, Yeah. This series is, this series is very much hobbled by the running times. Um, I think that every episode, almost every episode is too long. Um, There's and then also, but at the same time, it feels like they're still trying to do too much. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the pacing is always off. The story is always cluttered. Um, there's horror set pieces that are clearly there just for the sake of being set pieces. I have a thought yep. on on um, Crouch End in a moment, but it's like I think with but the the other problem too is like I think uh, maybe Nightmares and Dreamscapes downfall is sort of also one of its strengths, which is that it tried to show all these different sides of King's work. Like yeah. I mean, the idea mm-hmm. of doing Omni's Last Case and being like hey, we're going to show uh, this noirish um, side of King, you know, that a lot of people don't get to see very often. I think that's a great mm-hmm. idea. But the problem is, like, not just anybody can direct that kind of stuff. And I'm looking at the resume of the guy who directed um, that episode. His name's Rob Bowman, very prolific director, uh, directed for basically every TV show around, including, like, many, many, many episodes of The X-Files. Oh, and, yeah. and also yeah. 12 episodes of Parker Lewis Can't Lose, King's Dominion, <laughs> Coronemic, uh, oh. so super supernatural star Coronemic, uh, uh, um, but but also just like, <gasps> no. but also just like <laughs> look at look at that difference. X Files, um, Parker Lewis can't lose. He also directed uh, the films Rain of Fire and Electra, and mm. uh, both of those did not do well. So he was actually licking his wounds that when he was directing his episodes of Nightmares and Dreamscapes, uh, which were the was the one of the first things he directed after those movies flopped. So I think, um, but the idea that 
this guy who is clearly an everyman, like, because I'm looking at his resume, he directed on, like, everything. Mm -hmm. And he directed horror, he directed sci-fi, he directed drama, he directed comedy. And that's probably why they liked him, that it seemed like he could do it all. But the way that I mm -hmm. see it is he doesn't really have a clear vision. And mm -hmm. he's nope. he's playing with noir tropes and ideas of what noir is and, like, that fast talking kind of like, hey, hey, uh, uh, you know, mm -hmm. kind of bullshit. And Get a it, job, see? Yeah, and I just don't, I don't, like, that's what kind of killed me for it was, like, I was watching somebody sort of play acting their memories of what you know of a of a paperback pulp dime store novel that they read when they were young you um, know Ran and randall, so randall yeah you're, you're forgetting one thing and this is very important to randall uh, and i because it's literally we're like pretty much the only diehard fans of this movie in the entire world uh i might agree with you that rob bowman doesn't have a vision uh, for for all <laughs> considerations based on his resume he doesn't um oh. but we would be forgetting one film I just saw it. <laughs> 1993 action comedy drama about inline skating uh, features a Shane McDermott, a uh, real estate agent, Shane McDermott, uh, Seth Green, Brittany Powell, and Jack, Black. Jack Black, and my former teacher, Chris Conrad, Airborne. <laughs> if that I is not Airborne. a vision. <laughs> I totally missed Airborne when I was looking through his oh my gosh. through his thing. So, well, I will say I this. had such a crush on Seth Green in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I will say yeah. this. Uh, the best part of Airborne is not the directing. It is the performance by the real estate agent. Yeah. By <laughs> AKA the kid who plays the lead character who is now a real estate agent. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. He is so hysterically funny in that movie. Highly recommend Airborne. Maybe we'll start Airborne cast. Uh, <laughs> join Casper cast. So um, Casper Van cast. Uh, <laughs> Had to throw that out there. Sorry for interrupting, but I just so, kind of did a no, no, no. I, I'm glad you pointed that out. So anyways, I guess that's my thing is like, I don't feel like I'm in good hands with somebody directing something that is that highly stylized. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I don't feel like we're getting sort of a good uh, adaptation of of Omni's un unwatchable last case. Uh, so, uh, Jen, yeah. any other thoughts on on Omni's last case? Um, not necessarily on Omni's, but just like the whole thing has like, you know, when you're watching a biopic and it's like, this is, they're just filming the Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. You know, I got that feeling. It's like, they're just going through beat by beat by beat of these stories and there's no life to it, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I agree that I like that they showed such a wide range, but it's just like, it always just feels like filming a storyboard of all of these like put together, you know, it just, yeah. I don't know. Well, what's, is Never. there one that, is there one that stands out to you that you actually like besides Battleground? Um, yeah, I did really like the road virus heads North. I was okay. into that one and I love that story. So I was excited to see that. Of course, I love most of these stories. And when I was reading all of the titles, I got really, really excited. And then, um, really sad pretty soon after, um, but yeah, I really, I thought Tom Berenger was good. I thought the picture kind of creeped me out. Now it did, get a little cheesy I didn't like the the cancer subplot I don't think is in the story and I think that's an example of trying to put more in than it needed and I don't know if it was to fill run times um which is probably what that crystal healing thing was about but um oh, that I was do weird really is that like, not in the story no it's not in the story yeah, they talk see, about the ex-wife like one. they talk that, about her being into it but she's not a character in the story like they just talk about her um, and that's a really great story. And I like, this was very faithful to it, but it just, I did like that mostly because the imagery of the road virus, I think was creepy. You know, I yeah. have a question, uh, based on the road virus. How, how many bottles of Jack Daniels do you think, uh, Tom Berenger <laughs> drank before and after every take? I mean, he is a little, he is a little red faced. It mm. is just unfucking real in this uh, in, the, in this in this segment. I mean, granted, you watch like Inception. He looks like he's literally like sipping a flask every uh, between takes. But like, <laughs> I and and this is coming from someone who loves Berenger. Don't get me wrong. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Jake Taylor, one good of my in favorite this, characters. In this short, yeah, he's not bad in this. But all I, it just looks as if like, I don't know. That's maybe that's not fair, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> his knees are still hurting you know he's got to dull that pain yeah. Um, yeah he's probably sitting there just being like god i wish i would have won that world series um, i know <laughs> i wanted i wanted uh, i just wanted them to just say because the way that the character in the painting in road virus was designed i wanted them to say that it was just randall flags <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's not how I pictured him when I read. I pictured him with shorter hair. Although I did like that they did the cannibal teeth, which is something King mentions a couple of times in different stuff that I liked. 
Yeah, I feel like there was just I feel like and this is in that episode, but then also in a lot of um in a lot of these was and I think this was just like a filming like trend at the time, uh, or at least like a like a shot trend was um it, it was very Rob Zombie music video to me. It was like jagged cuts and it was mm-hmm. uh yeah. you know, and like weird zooms and like weird filters that were being used on everything. And uh like this shaky sort of jagged quick cut kind of thing. And I found that it yeah, it felt like I was just watching like a metal music video sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah, weird. And I think, oh, go for it. Go for it. No, no, you go. This might have been an example of me just loving the story so much and really wanting it to be good and like trying to transferring a little bit of that love into it and kind of giving it a lot more credit than it probably deserves. Because there were a couple other ones that I kind of did that with. Yeah, I would say that Virus, Road Virus uh, was one of my favorites out of them. Um, mm-hmm. Another one that I thought wasn't uh, too bad. I mean, I, th- I think it was like way overstuffed and I might... Um, I might get laughs at this, but I didn't hate, um, you know, they got a hell of a band. (laughs) Oh God. Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) That is. Well, okay. This is a big, this is a bigger question. Uh, and I think the reason I liked it is because it felt like they were trying to tap into the sillier side of King. Like, Mm -hmm. and I think that's something that a lot of people have no, like basically almost nobody's figured out how to do. Um, Cause there is this sort of goofy side to King. And the thing mm-hmm. is his movies and, and his shows and everything, they always play well when you kind of double down on the darkness and the nastiness and the character work, you know, like, or the, the good dramatic character work. But I do feel like there's just these stories, like that's such an inherently dumb story. Oh, like, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how else are you supposed to play it? And I actually gave it a little bit of credit for sort of making it really stupid. Like, Mm -hmm. I I think that they really doubled down on the way they played Elvis, like the way they totally do. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I guess I just appreciated that because I'm like, well, how else do you do this thing? No, You can't. I mean, Weber. With the budget they had. Well, well, one of the things I was going to mention with the, the special features I watch is that, like, you know, every segment has interviews with the cast and crew. And they're, you know, this is, I don't know why they didn't have like a a digital camera, but like, it literally looks like they're like filming from like a late nineties camcorder for most of them. (laughs) And the, 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 my favorite one is with Weber, who I just love Weber in in general. And he was great. I think uh, he's good in in it too. In Curb Enthusiasm, he's amazing. Um, But I, I I love Weber, but in his interview, (laughs) he takes these long pauses as if he's like trying to like, you know, he's, he's, he, as if he's like walking on thin ice because like he, I feel like he's in on the joke. Like he knows that this is fucking stupid. And he, throughout the whole, like they're interviewing him outside the diner and he's like, you know, um, I, I think the, 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 the real joy with this is that, um, you know, they, they, uh, they find some reality d- despite <laughs> this being, uh, you know, a pretty outlandish story. And he like leaves it at that and, and but he has these the way that he does these pauses and he's like you know I just love Stephen King and you know, I I guess because I'm in The Shining I'm you know uh, connected uh it, it, but it's so like he's being respectful and reverent of King's work but he just knows that like it's like it's like someone telling the worst best kept secret and like and I I just I love his reaction to this because I think it does feed into what you're saying Randall on that like they do mm-hmm. know that this there is so there is a self awareness to this that gets you know that gets through having said that. The, the the special effects in this are like literally on par with the the <laughs> Vegas sequence in the Stan miniseries. The hand of yeah. God. Uh, li- or oh yeah, like, when Janis Joplin is singing, I was uh, like, oh my god. Yeah, it, it reminds me like- of like it reminds me of like Beetlejuice's like graveyard review, like from like <laughs> Universal Studios, like like a bunch of extras that <sighs> that just like dress up. As these stars mm-hmm. that have no idea who they're playing, but they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm wearing you know the the, the wardrobe from Jimi Hendrix, and I'm mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix." Like, it's I'll just yeah. say that I I think the reason I liked this one was because I didn't I at least didn't find it boring. No, whereas no. Yes. I thought a lot of them were just really boring. Like the fifth quarter with Jeremy oh. Sisto, I Oof. thought was mm-hmm. like painfully dull. Yeah, yeah, 
that was one that I could not wait to be over, you know? And so, yeah, I guess you're right. Like, at least I was kind of into, you know, they got a hell of a band just because of the bonkersness, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And how many times can he not listen to her when she says she wants to leave? I know. And, like, there were so <laughs> many weird, like, when they went back to the town after, like, Elvis pulled them over or whatever, like, mm-hmm. it was like Weber was playing a different, like, he thought they were filming something earlier because there's uh-huh. clearly a sense of menace and he was he was like excited for the concert. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I, he's just I, a fantastic would, actor, you know? I, I kind of would couple that though with Autopsy Room 4. Um, yeah. You know, I think that you could have taken a more serious approach with this and because it is like a pretty high stakes story when you think about it. And it's kind of a classic Edgar Allan Poe uh, style story. Mm-hmm. Um, from King, uh, in which you know someone's on the operating table. They've been they've been bitten by a snake. They're paralyzed. It's almost like the Romeo and Juliet sort of ending. Um, and you know he's still alive, but they think he's dead. Um, even though this is modern science, I don't know how they that slips through. But you know, <laughs> either way, you buy the bit. But it's very tongue in cheek in the same way that uh, you know they got a hell of a band and. Look, I love seeing my boy Richard Thomas, and if there's anyone mm-hmm. that's happy to see him, I know it's you, Randall. Also, because oh, I love him, yeah. Like mm-hmm. Airborne, we love Richard Thomas. We're huge uh, <laughs> Richard Thomas fans. Um, wanted him to be in It Chapter Two. Uh, I think we oh, joked I around loved saying it. that we would have wanted him just to come back as Bill or something. Just but, play Bill again. <laughs> just play Bill again. But um, and I think he does a good job here. I mean, he kind of plays this sort of like. Um, uh, George Bush supporter almost like the way I like just the way that he's just so like um, he plays like this suburban white guy like so well in this I, I, I don't know I, I found it fun it's not good in any way shape or form mm-hmm. but it's again self-aware and that self-awareness yeah goes a long way I almost wish all of these were self-aware because I feel like they would have passed under the radar a little bit more but good god when they get mm-hmm. serious this this show is awful um, right and I think that is a good place to bring us to Crouch End, um, which I think it's it's a story that I like. And it's, you know, and I, I will say that I know at least some of our panel uh, is a fan of that story. And, you know, and it's another shade of King, which is like Lovecraft King, right? It's like mm-hmm. this couple, uh, this American couple is in London and then um, they're directed to this uh, neighborhood called Crouch End that some cabbies won't take them to. And then when one is taken, they say, oh, it was built on a druid burial ground. And, you know, and then they start seeing all this weird, spooky stuff, which we'll talk more about in a second because it's very funny. But, um, <laughs> but it's, you know, and then it's... Uh, basically they they realize that they have stumbled into kind of a, a rip in the fabric of the universe and and uh creatures from the other dimensions we we there's a lot of direct lovecraft references there's references to Cthulhu and then also uh Yag Sogoth I'm probably saying that wrong um and all the other lovecraft things uh monsters and so it's very you know it's very pointed in that sense and um I actually was quite excited for it when it started although mm. it gets off to kind of a bad start in just the general like it's it's very much a king trope where like two people like a married couple are together and all they can do is pod each other and just be like I want to fuck I want to fuck we have to fuck <laughs> like every like the first the first 10 minutes is just endless of that it's just like I get it I get it you're in love you know and um <laughs> And so it's very funny to me. And so, uh, but then they, when they get to Crouch End, uh, we start to see, I don't know, some, they try to be scary and it's not really Oof, scary. No. And this is no. where I, I was talking about sort of horror set pieces for the sake of it. There's kind of a whole section where he gets pulled into a hedge and, uh, and gets like tossed about and must about a little bit. And it's just, and then he comes out and he's like, I don't remember what happened. I don't know what happened. And that to me is like, very frustrating um because mm-hmm. i'm like no you were attacked by a monster or something and we have no idea what it was there's no clue as to what it was it was just a scary thing that happened for the sake of it because they needed it to happen in that moment you know mm-hmm. yeah so it yeah this is one that i feel like is really really does a disservice to the story by trying to stick as close to the story as it does you know like this could be an example to or a way or 
Aha. This could be one where you could really explore like the different atmospheres because what makes that story successful, and it is one of my favorite short stories, um, is how creepy it is and how creepy the atmosphere is. And you don't necessarily have to do that with those two kids and the cat. You can do it in another way and be like creative with it. And they just didn't. They were so like slavish to the story that I think it just didn't, it didn't work at all. And this is an example of King writing things that do not, translate well to the screen um, and it was funny because I was just talking in our bag of bones episode that this is what I would want creep show to do yeah mm-hmm. um, and now I'm like oh well maybe not um but I do want to say like the audiobook of this is amazing and Tim Curry reads it uh-huh. so Kings creepy Dominion. and it I just love it and so that's part of the reason I love this story and this was the one I was the most excited for and this was like my journey to being let down was the hardest in this I, one. But again, I think yeah, a lot of it happens to oh, you be, go, the, I think a lot of it happens to be with the, like the, the lack of vision, like what you're saying with Rob Bowman. Yeah. I mean, this guy, Mark Harbert, um, or Mark Haber, he's, <laughs> I mean, up to that point, he had only done TV movies like Daisies in December, that classic 1995 winner. Um, <laughs> and then, oh, you favorite. know, like Alien Cargo or Dying to Dance. And like, he's since only done like- And then you're going to get, yeah. And like you're gonna Rizzolian give him like idols. a love, a lo- like a Lovecraft adaptation. You know yeah. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. uh, you're gonna give him something this ambitious. Like yeah. this is this is a really complex story. I mean, this mm-hmm. is like you're dealing with like unspeakably evil monsters in this, yeah. and mm-hmm. like t- that's that's the thing. You need a horror director to make this, you know. And that's yeah. I think what drives me crazy. And also just anybody who would let that cat with the hollowed out eye, CGI oh, eye on I screen. Know. And they uh-huh. kept and they kept showing it. It literally like it was like it was I don't know. It, it was one. Of, it's one of the fakest effects I've ever seen in my life. And they show it like six times. And I literally right. wrote in my notes. Stop showing the cat. Yeah. Stop like, yeah. showing. It, the makes, cat. it makes David Lynch's like sh- like like pointedly shitty uh, CGI look so much like look like like uncanny valley by comparison. Um, like I, I just it was so mind boggling that this was actually on primetime television at this i guess primetime is mm-hmm. tnt right i don't know um and but, that they let off with this too. yeah like what the fuck and then but then again if you like look back like i've been watching a lot of movies from the aughts i don't know why because for me it's the worst <laughs> decade in terms of any culture but um i i we watched like we watched like spider-man the other night and i love spider-man and mm-hmm. but there's a scene where he, when he like first becomes spider-man and he like crawls in the wall and I'll tell you, I saw that movie 12 times in theaters and I probably like lost my shit every time that you see Tobey Maguire jump on that fucking wall. But like as a 36, 30, almost 36 year old now who's seen some CGI, I'm like, what the (laughs) fuck were they thinking? Like this got past like major, this made $400 million. And then like just thinking, well, CGI at this time, they just went with it. They just put it on the screen mm-hmm. because I remember complaining so many times about some of the CGI at that at that point, and it's just that's why like when you see garish CGI now, it, it really does kind of harken back to that era where it's like we just let mm-hmm. things go by because well it was cheap and easy, and we still were kind of in that ooh and ah phase of like things that were coming you know that were digitally made. I mean like you look back at like even Gollum hasn't aged that well. I mean people still mm-hmm. praise the Lord of the Rings movies but I, I recently watched that movie um, one of them I can't remember which ones I don't really know him that well but like he's you know he's walking around like talking to Frodo and I'm like I gotta be honest with you uh, they're gonna kind of they're gonna have to George Lucas the, Lucas this and <laughs> fix, fix the CGI in it because it doesn't look too great. It's just I just don't think mm. the odds were good with CGI. Um, no. And like, and like, I just, yeah. And I, it just, it almost makes me wonder if they blew their whole budget on Battlecrown. Yeah. (laughs) They probably might have, but you don't Uh, have to make the eye, the creepy thing about the cat. Right. You know, like you could make like, that was a choice they made because they wanted to stay faithful to the story. And like that blows it. You don't have like make, give a flicker of his face changing into like a goat or something. Yeah. Like just make it a mean looking cat, you know, like, yeah. I mean, like, they did the sleepwalker's face with those biker boys or whatever. <laughs> like, right. Do that. <laughs> Make the cat have a human face, you know? Ooh, right. That would be good. They should have brought but, Garrison. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why didn't they oh, think about Garris? I mean. But I'll just mm. say that. And then you also see, like, when they see the vortex later and you see the cat fly into it. And, it, <laughs> and it's just, like, a still image of the cat that's, like, 
moving. Oh, and it reminded just... me of like the mannequin Nadine falling from the balcony <laughs> in the stand. <laughs> Which still looks better. Like that, even that effect <laughs> somehow looks better. I, I always go back to like, the Evil Dead and, and and even the Evil Dead too. Like Sam Raimi mm-hmm. had hardly any fucking money when he made that movie, and yet the portal sequence at the end of that movie when Ash is being thrown in there, it still. I mean, obviously it looks fake and it's a blue screen, but it still looks so much more realistic than right. half a dozen of the shit that happens with millions upon millions of dollars. And I don't get it. I still don't get it. I still don't get why you know 2015's Jurassic World looks worse than 1993's Jurassic Park. Like, I don't get how these mm-hmm. things happen. Jen, what did you think about Jurassic World? Yeah, please go. I, okay, <laughs> unpopular opinion. I really liked it. I had a lot of fun. So did um, Dan Caffrey. Yeah, I, it was fun. I mean, it was like the greatest hits, you know, like going to a reunion concert. Um, and so I just had fun with it. Now, the next one, The Lost Kingdom, was people told me how terrible that was and I was not prepared to hate it as much as I did, but I did really (laughs) enjoy. So I like Jurassic world and I like Jurassic park. And those are the extreme high points of that franchise. Well, you know, to connect this back, uh, there was a, a a young Jewish filmmaker by the name of Steven Spielberg (laughs) who did the original one in 1993. Um, that same year he also did Schindler's list, but 11 years before that, he did a movie called E.T. starring Henry Thomas. <gasps> ah. um, and Henry Thomas <laughs> would grow up to become quite a, a, a horror actor uh, as he's a favorite yeah. of Mike Flanagan. And I got to say, seeing him paired with one of my favorite actors of all time in Ron Livingston. Ron Livingston having, is one of your favorite I actors love, of I all love time. Livingston. I love Livingston. <laughs> I, I, every, every, I, I love him. I love him ever since yeah. Swingers. He's great on Sex in the City. Yes, he is. He's he's great in that. Yeah, totally. I love him, but he's nobody's favorite actor. He is I, look, it's a different it's a different caliber. Like I I look at like I have rankings. So like Jane is always going to be at the top with Jane. DiCaprio. But mm-hmm. when it when he it comes to like back, guys. I just want my kids back. I love him. I just want him back. Um give him some more roles. Uh-huh. But uh when it comes to Ron Livingston, he he's part of that crew that I have where I I always am rooting for them. Like, I just mm-hmm. always want them to do well. And when I see them, I feel like he picks his roles particularly well for the most part. So when I see him in things, I'm like, ooh, I'm excited. And so to mm-hmm. see him paired with Henry Thomas, who I think is is, is uh, pretty selective as well, like, well, I, I, I think this might be the most disappointing chapter, the end of the whole mess of this whole bunch, <laughs> because it yeah. should I like their good. bad wigs in that one scene. Oh, God. Just give me, like... You want to talk about boring? Like yeah. this in the fifth quarter were two that just killed me. Like I just it was like, what a waste mm-hmm. of fucking talent that you just mm-hmm. ki- you kicked the bucket on it. And uh, yeah, but, and I yeah. love this story too. Yeah, like the end of the whole mess is really good. But it's so funny when he's talking about being like an award winning documentary filmmaker, <laughs> and the documentaries they're showing are terrible. I it's know like they cut cardboard <laughs> cutouts of them. And like, I, might as well I, have like speech bubbles coming out of their faces. I was, was sending like, Mike, like, just I was watching my laptop and I was sending him like videos of me watching it and just the like the, <laughs> the still shots of like the cameras clicking and like him at the Oscars. And it's like, uh, it looks like it was made in Microsoft Paint. <laughs> like, it looks uh-huh. so bad. <laughs> right. Really like, bad. I could do that kind of documentary filmmaking. <laughs> I know. It cracked me up. Yeah, that one was just hyper dull for me. But um, I like yeah. the wigs. That was my favorite part. The was wigs. You saw them <laughs> yeah. in their long, oh. long hair <laughs> like because they were so bad like they look like they just put like mops on their heads you yeah know? <laughs> there was i was watching the um youtube one and you know those little corner commercials where the show is still on yeah um after that fender bender there was a little nascar guy that ran out and it said nascar at the bottom of the screen but i was like what the fuck is he going to go change the tire it was such a bizarre coincidence <laughs> <laughs> but it was more interesting than the entire episode i know oh yeah yeah no this just is so yeah, that dull. one broke my heart a little bit I just, well i don't I want to break your heart, Mike, but I've heard that Ron Livingston is not the best interview. Oh, really? Oh, <gasps> yeah. That's all I'm going to say. I uh, my lips are sealed. Maybe but, he's, uh, uh, he goes per- a pure Peter Gibbons and just kind of you know. Is <laughs> <on>. <laughs> um, speak. We should get Henry Thomas on the pod, though. Oh, he, we should. Yes. Yeah. Just for yeah. kicks, I love him. Yeah. We can talk to him about Thank this episode. <laughs> well, we could talk about how he uh, how he mirrored Jack, and if he call if he got to talk to Nick. Yeah, no, that did, actually uh, would be really Sleep. cool. Um, you know. mm-hmm. But then we have to spend like five minutes being like, all right, tell us about the end of the whole mess. Yeah, right. <laughs> was it a mess? Was it, it a was mess? A mess, guys. Yeah. 
Um, did, did I think Ma- I think did that Mikhail kind of, Salomon uh, not deliver because uh, this is the guy <laughs> well, that he also, also directed <laughs> Autopsy Room Four. Yeah, and uh, he also did uh, uh, Band of Brothers and Salem's Lot, and he earned like two also Academy Award nominations. Yeah, I mean, honestly, out of all the filmmakers that are doing stuff on here, he probably is the most acclaimed, which is why it's so baffling that they had the tools and the talent to make the end of the whole mess not a mess, and yet it turns out to be a catastrophe. So, oh mm-hmm. well. Oh, well. Yeah, well, I'd say that uh, that covers most of the stories. I don't think we even talk about Fifth Quarter. It's it's so boring. Ugh. It's yeah. so boring. And that's and let me just say, not a favorite of the uh, of the Nightmares and Dreamscapes crew as well. Speaking yeah. of, we are back next week with the first part. It's epic. We've already recorded it. Uh, it's going to be the the our least favorite stories in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. We got a great panel lined up for that. And then two weeks after that, we're going to have uh, their favorite stories and. Um, um, let's just say that nobody really agreed on the best and worst stories. So mm. I think that it's they're going to be very spirited conversations. Um, so, yeah. Uh, anything, any final thoughts to wrap up this episode, guys? Mm. Keep main green, send money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I just do wanna, like seeing those little nods. <laughs> I, I just want to say I'm, I'm all for the idea of an airborne cast. Um, I... You know, mm-hmm. I've already seen a, a bunch of comments uh, on our Patreon, uh, so very supportive of our Abyss cast. If we want to do, uh, I still haven't decided <laughs> if we're going to do the director's cut or the theatrical cut. If uh, if we do indulge in that, but uh, hopefully the theatrical cut because the director's cut of the, the Abyss is kind of abysmal. But um, no, oh, that's intended. what I watched. And uh, I will say, I'm all for an airborne cast. You want to hear Randall and I just pop ollies all day uh, and and do 360s on this movie. It would be amazing. Air, airborne cast for me would just be like, just sort of read the read the script. Like that's yeah. all you need. It's the funniest fucking shit I've ever heard. I know. Um, it's so it's so dude, ridiculous. Seth Jack, Green. Jack that's when I fell shark. in love with Seth Green. Yes. Well, well this is, maybe this we'll fun, all y'all. go down the devil's backbone together. <laughs> do non-stop references this was fun uh a yeah. fun little a fun little precursor to our episodes on the book uh look forward to those and we're also going to have an episode after we talk about the books um touching on the night flyer and dolan's cadillac and maybe you know maybe a few other of the dollar babies we'll see <laughs> but oh, we're going to definitely focus on those so stay tuned and um shall we wrap it up yeah. i think long so. days Long days and and pleasant nights. Thanks, y'all. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>